Welcome to A Story of Us, our humanity, history, and department. This podcast is hosted entirely by the graduate students at The Ohio State University's Anthropology Department through the Public Outreach Program, or APOP for short, and in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. In previous series, we explored anthropology through themes of migration, childhood, and death. We had episodes of written content followed by interviews between members of our department to introduce you to various anthropological concepts. Now it's time to switch things up. In this series, we will be conducting one-on-one interviews with anthropologists from different subfields. Today's guest here with me is Dr. Douglas Cruz, a biological anthropologist and human biologist. Welcome, Dr. Cruz. Thank you. So we're going to ask you a couple of questions today related to anthropology and diversity. And the first thing that I was wondering if you could do for us is to define anthropology in your own words. Anthropology really is the study of all facets of humankind. And that includes not only modern humankind, but ancient humankind, evolution of humankind, any evolution of all life on this planet really coming up to humans. But we mainly study non-human primates, modern and ancient um, humans. We use skeletal biology, human biology, and modern. So it's a very broad field. And it also includes, I'm just talking about my own area, biological anthropology, but it also includes cultural anthropology, linguistics, applied anthropology, and I'm archaeology, bioarchaeology. So there's so much in anthropology, it's hard to just give you a basic definition of anthropology other than the study of humankind and all of its variety and its evolutionary biology. And we've gotten a chance to look at some of those different things over the course of the last few seasons. So what led you to become an anthropologist? My introduction to anthropology was completely accidental. I had never heard of anthropology while I was in high school or anywhere else. They just didn't even mention it in high schools back when I was in high school a couple of decades ago. So when I got out of high school, I didn't really know what I was going to college for. I went to college because you went to college and and, and I actually originally went for something totally different than anthropology, but I took four introductory courses my first term at Penn State, and amongst them were sociology, introduction to chemistry, introduction to anthropology, and I can't even remember the fourth one, but I know I had four courses because I had, at that time, it would have been 12 credits, and that's what you had to have. And I really was interested in both the uh, sociology and the anthropology, and really was excited about the differences, because sociology was doing these massive surveys and of people and so on, whereas anthropologists were actually going out and studying people in their real living situations and talking to them and interviewing them and looking at not only their culture, but their health, their well-being. And I thought that was a very important thing. And when I uh, came back after that semester, I started enrolling in anthropology courses, and I started pursuing an anthropology degree right away after my first term. That sounds awesome. So you mentioned the interaction with humans and especially their health as being a component that interested you. So is that reflected in your own research? Oh, yes, very much so. Early on in my uh, graduate career, I had an instructor. I was lucky enough to end up at a university, which was really vested in human biology, Uh, Paul T. Baker, who was a leader in human biology at the time, and Edward Hunt, who had come out of Harvard also, was also a leader in modern human biology, were both there. And I took a class on senescence and aging with Edward Hunt. And after that, I was just hooked on senescent biology. Why do we age? Why do we die? What is the underlying biology, underlying genetics? And so I've been pursuing that and that evolutionary model of aging and senescence ever since. So can you tell us a little bit about some of the research that you're working on currently? 
Sure. My major area, as I just said, is uh, why do we age? Why do we die when we do? So I was very interested early on, particularly in chronic degenerative diseases and particularly in risk factors for chronic degenerative diseases. And so that was the mainspring for the rest of my research. As I started looking at that, I started also looking at genetics. And I also started looking at the evolutionary biology underlying chronic degenerative diseases. So as time progressed and I got through my dissertation, so I realized that what I'm really studying is stress and stressors because the whole reason we age and die is because we're exposed to life stressors and our physiology is not evolved enough so that we can live forever, which seems to be an impossibility through natural selection. So what are the forces that led to differential lifespans amongst not only humans, but our non-human primates and humans at all the different ages of humankind. That's a very big area to be researching. And so mine really has come down to how do we respond to stressors today and how do they structure our own personal life histories, our health, and how old we live to be before we perish. What sort of stressors are we talking about here? Well, everything's a stressor. This is a stressor right now talking to you. I'm sure it's a stressor for you also right now. Everything you do is basically a stressor. Good things are stressful. Bad things are stressful. So stress is the basis of basically all evolutionary biology. The reason we have the physiologies and the phenotypes that we today share with the rest of the human species is because our ancestors, both our primate ancestors and our mammalian ancestors and our vertebrate ancestors and our single cell ancestors all the way back to the beginning of life, have been responding to stressors. So we're trying to measure how those stressors interact with people because some people are long lives, some people are short lives. So there are early senescing people and there are late senescing people. So what we want to look at is differences between them in real terms in real life. So we look at things like frailty, which means people get more frail, they lose their muscles, they they have bone loss and so on, they they become more frail as they get older. And the other one is allostatic load that we're looking at. Allostatic load basically uh, arises as our stress responses uh, use. Every time we encounter a stress, there is a stress response to that. That stress response is based in our psychoneuroendocrinology. And that, and that is what we're studying today. How do the various our neurological hormones, how do they react and how does the body react when under stress? And so we're studying that to look at how stress over a lifetime leads to chronic degenerative diseases and either longer or shorter lifespans. So I'm going to throw this one to you off the cuff. It's related. <laughs> How do you conduct your research? So can you walk me through what a day in the field would be like for you? Okay. If we were going to conduct research, I'll give you a typical day like where we've done research either in a number of different places. It's pretty much the same. We contact the local people. We have colleagues who work in that country usually, whether it's the United States here where I'm available. But we also work in Poland. We work in um Kuwait, we work in Japan. And what we do is with our colleagues, we contact people who live in a particular kind of setting that we're interested in. For example, I'm going to use the uh, Japanese and the Polish samples, for example. We study people in the city of Nagasaki who were over the age of 65, and we measure them. We measure a number of things on them, including things like their strength. We measure their blood pressure, and we get some blood and we get some uh, overnight urine collections so we can measure hormones for those. We measure their anthropometry and then we make up a index of their current health related to those particular variables that we call allostatic load. And what I do is I go to the house in the morning and I say, good morning, um, I'm here and you met my colleagues yesterday and we gave you a bottle to you know, use overnight and collect some urine for us. And we're here now to to sample your blood because you're fasting this morning. And so we're going to collect a fasting blood sample. 
we're going to measure you, we're going to measure anthropometry, and we're going to ask you a series of questionnaires about your health, your well-being, your lifestyle, and how you feel about your current situation. And we'll look at a group, for example, in Japan, we were out on the Goto Islands, way out in the, in the China Sea, where we were measuring what we called a rural sample. Not that there's any really rural sample left in Japan, but as rural as we could get. And we compared them to the sample in Nagasaki. The same way in Poland, we went to the city of Poznan, which is a very large city in Poland. And we went to a little village called Nekla, about 50 kilometers outside of there. And we did the same measurements on both of these groups of elders, ages 65 and over. And now we're comparing them to see whether or not lifestyle, whether or not diet, all those various things, and their social settings and their, and their stress levels are different between the two. And then we'll go back in five or 10 years of follow-up and see how well these people have survived and, and what their allostatic load predicted who would survive and who would not. We'll try that out. So that way you're working with the same group in the before and then you can do right. it later. So, yes, yeah, so you want to do after. a longitudinal study. It's really hard to study senescence and aging in a cross-sectional pattern. You really need to get more than one, hopefully two, three, or four different measurements on them. So can you talk a little bit about how your research fits in and enhances the broader theme of anthropology that we discussed at the very beginning of this episode? The research that I conduct today, and I conduct research in living and non-living populations from skeletal biology because we have a very large group of bioarchaeologists at our department. And so what we're looking at is basically how people have responded over the history of humankind to the stressors in their environment. So anthropology is studying environments and how we adapt. We study human ecology. We study human behavior within certain uh, ecological settings. And what we're looking at here is how humans do respond to the stressors of life while they're alive, and particularly how elders do that based on what their backgrounds are. So we'll have these people's education. We'll know what what kind of occupations they've had. We'll know where where they are in the social system and their social status, and we'll look and see how these things differentially affect people depending on who they are and where they live. How does that fit into anthropology overall? It's the same thing as our cultural anthropologists would do when they go out and study a group of people. Of course, they would live with these elderly people for a long period of time, and they would get to know how they interact socially. We don't have the opportunity to get all the cultural data, but we can get part of the cultural data by surveys, and then we can measure and connect their social system and how they interact with their relatives, their friends, the political economy of their own culture, and how that affects their outcome, their health, and their lifespan overall. So that's a great way to take a look at it in the broader theme of anthropology. And one of the things that we want to focus on in this series in particular is looking at human diversity in the past and the present. So can you talk a little bit about how your research contributes to our understanding of human diversity in both the past and the present? Or in other words, how is your research tied to current debates about human diversity in general? One of the major debates currently in our general population is between different groups of people having different ethnicities or what some people like to label as races. And our philosophy is that biologically speaking, at least on the genetic and biological basis, you cannot define specific races. But socioculturally speaking, we do tend to define races based on external phenotypes. Those external phenotypes people may use to structure the way they interact with people. And our basis is that we have studied Japanese in Japan. We've studied Kuwaitis in Kuwait. We study Polish people in Poland. We've studied African-Americans in the United States. We've studied Samoans in the South Pacific. Basically, what we're finding is they're all the same, 
there's not a difference in how they interact with their environment. There's not a difference in their outlook on life. What is different is the risks that they're exposed to by their social systems, their social structure, and their environment. So what we're looking at is how social systems really structure health and well-being. And we're also illustrating that this is not something that's based on where you're from or what color your skin is or what color eyes you have. It's based on what kind of opportunity structure do you have within your environment to better your own self to acquire what you need to have a healthy life, whether that be nutrients, food, education, or a social standing that is better than the one you have so that you're not the one being discriminated against in many of the societies today. Discrimination is the main cause and lack of social status or income, if you want to say it, are the main causes of disparities in health. And therefore, we have to look at these things rather than the phenotypes, what people look like. We have to know the physiology of all humans and then look at how stressors affect each one of those. That's a really awesome way to do it. I just wanted to take a second to, we talked a little bit about phenotypes, and I think we've mentioned it in some of our previous episodes, but just to give our listeners a brief reminder of what a phenotype is. A phenotype is the observable differences between humans. All humans have a phenotype for any variable, say height. I don't know what your phenotype is for height. Uh, maybe five foot six, five foot seven, something like that. We'll just estimate there. And mine is about five foot six, five foot seven. I used to be a lot taller. So my phenotype has actually changed with respect to height over time. I've lost about an inch and a half of height over my lifespan from the time when I was my, my tallest. All of our traits change over time. Some people weigh more when they're in their 20s and 30s and weigh less when they're in their 40s and 50s. Some people, so these all these are aspects of your phenotype, your height, your weight. Your blood pressure, your your blood type is your phenotype. So every aspect of a human being, their, their body, their physiology can be considered a phenotype. And what we look at are the aspects of that body called body habitus, which tend to influence disease risks and increase your risk or decrease your risk for disease. So people who are more endomorphic or ectomorphic or mesomorphic have different risks for different diseases based on their body size and shape, which is a phenotype. So your heart rate right now is also a constantly changing phenotype, but it's still a phenotype, but it's constantly responding to the environment. When you're under stress, your blood pressure goes up, your heart rate goes up, all those things go up. So your phenotype changes throughout the day for some aspects, but other aspects of your phenotype are more permanent, like your height. So you're telling me I can't grow another three inches just by wishing it. Oh. No, but you can shrink by living a long time. <laughs> Fair enough. And I guess that's part of anthro... Uh... That's part of the anthropometrics that we measure. People tend to get shorter as they get older. There tends to be regression to the mean for many things such as blood pressure. The average blood pressure of older people is usually lower than the average pr blood pressure of, say, if we took a group of people who were 40 to 50 who have a broader range of variation and so therefore have a higher blood pressure. We also are looking at selective survival because people with extreme blood pressures or extreme body weights tend to not survive as long as people closer to the mean. So therefore, it's the average phenotype that seems to be one of the better ways to progress through life and live longer is that people at more average phenotypic traits, whether it's height, weight, blood pressure, or anything. So what I've really gotten a sense of over the course of our conversation is that your research is able to merge human biology in terms of the, the phenotypes and the actual biological measurements of a person and use it in this anthropological way that's able to study the people themselves, the relationship to their environments, and bring it back over time in order to understand this diversity across populations across the world. 
Yes, and, and, and the way you just described it is very, very clear. And the only difference between, like for us, and people talk about epidemiology. So there's a difference between anthropologists and epidemiologists. Anthropologists go into a population and they study the population across all of its aspects. And they try to actually incorporate themselves into the population so that they can understand how the people live, their social lives. So that's where we have the cultural anthropology and we work with cultural anthropologists. But then we also measure their biology and their physiology and things like that. But those are a combination of biocultural factors. And so we really are doing biocultural, trying to integrate people's biology and physiology with what's going on in their social system and their culture. So we use a biocultural model for our research. And thanks so much for sharing your research with us, Dr. Cruz. Emma, I really appreciate you inviting me here today. This was great to interact with you, and I'm glad you asked me the questions you did because it helped me to understand more what we're doing with these podcasts and to think about what I do in the realm of anthropology. It's been a really great way to tie some of our previous seasons into our new series. And what we're going to be doing for the rest of this series, we're also going to have a cultural anthropologist that we'll be talking to, and we're going to have an archaeologist. So it's going to be really great for our listeners, I think, to be able to start to tie all of these different themes together. So to our listeners, thank you for listening to today's episode. While you're waiting for the next episode, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at A Story of Us. OSU, or check out our website, anthropology.osu.edu, and leave us a review of the show on iTunes. Remember, the more reviews we have, the easier it is for people to find the show and fall in love with it like you did. And as always, this podcast is produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. We hope you join us next time as we continue to explore a story of us, our humanity, history, and department. (laughs) ¶¶